A study uh, was conducted several years ago to assess what were people's greatest fears in life. And the results were a little bit surprising. Actually, death was not the, the number one fear for most people. Do you know what the number one fear for most people was? Yeah, you've heard this before. This is quite surprising, really. But uh, I love what Jerry Seinfeld said about this. If you go to a funeral, that means that most people at the funeral would rather be the guy in the coffin than the guy giving the eulogy. Now, if that's true, most of you would rather be in a coffin than doing what I'm doing right now. But that just seems weird to me. How does that statistic come about? Why do people really not fear death that much? Why isn't it the greatest fear? I want to suggest to you today that it that actually should be. You, you actually should be afraid of death. I know that's not what the talk title says, but this is my first point. <laughs> you ought to be afraid of death, and I'm going to make a case for that with two points. Okay? The first point is, you don't want it to happen. Now, I take it as given that most people here, possibly everyone, does not want to die. And there are two things in that. One, there's how you could die. And that could be quite scary. And the second is, what will happen to you after you die? And that could be scary. So the first one. There are plenty scary ways to die. And probably my worst case scenario is uh, free falling in a plane, plummeting to certain death. That's probably my worst case. And I go, it goes through my head every time I get on a plane. And so, having admitted that to you, it's a bit macabre that my favourite TV show is Air Crash Investigations. <laughs> Any Air Crash fans yeah. today? Yeah. So, there was, there was this one plane that um, went into a free fall dive and the angle that the plane was in as it fell put so much strain on the frame of the, the plane that it, it broke into pieces. And everyone, fully conscious and alive, plummeted to their death. And when you when you're on a you know when you've fallen out of a plane and you're in the chair and the plane's no longer around you, then there's really no hope, is there? No one's going to turn that plane around, and even if they do, you're not in it. The scary thing about that incident was that they worked out not only was were the passengers alive when it happened, not only were they conscious, but it would have taken about four minutes for them to fall to their death. So you imagine falling to certain death for four minutes. So yeah, scary. But then there's what happens to you after you die. And some people think, well, you just cease to exist. You just rot. You're eaten by worms or whatever, burnt to ashes. But that could be scary if you have a fear of, say, non-existence. But for others, you might be afraid that when you die, you're going to come face to face with the living God and maybe he won't be happy with you. And that could be scary. Now, plummeting to your death for four minutes, that's one thing, but it's over in four minutes. Coming into the hands of the living God, well, the consequences of that could last a bit longer. So that's my first point. You don't want to die. And couple that with my second point. You're going to die. Yes, you are going to die. It's going to happen to every person in this room. And I know while you're in your 20s, this is a kind of remote reality that you tend not to think about and maybe push to the periphery of your mind. 
And you, you, maybe, you know it's going to happen rationally, but for many of us, you don't know it inside. You haven't really taken hold of that truth. You haven't really accepted that reality that it's going one day to happen to you. The American writer William Saragan in 1981 telephoned into the Associated Press to make one final comment a couple of days before his imminent death. And he said, everyone has got to die, but I've always believed an exception would be made in my case. (laughs) Do you hope you're the exception? It's not going to happen to you. I mean, you can't imagine life without you in it, right? And here's the thing. As remote as it may seem, as distant as it may be, it is going to happen to every person in this room. And in 100 years' time, every single person here today will be dead. So, put those two things together. You don't want to die and you're going to die. That seems to me to make a pretty logical case for being afraid of death. This is not one of those irrational fears you know, that people have, like uh, someone who suffers from levophobia is someone who is afraid of objects on their left-hand side. <laughs> the thing is, as you avoid them, they just keep getting... You get more and more of them. Now, no offence if you have levophobia, but... That's not really a rational fear. But death is a rational fear. Because it's going to happen. Not might happen, not a good chance. 100%. So you should be afraid of death. And if you're not, well, maybe it's because you just haven't really thought about it. Or maybe it's because you're kind of kidding yourself like Woody Allen, who once said, it's not that I'm afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Well, today I want to talk about, having convinced you that you should be afraid of death, a reason for hope, and perhaps a reason to not fear death. And it's a hope that the Bible puts out. And so, uh, let me read to you from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. We had it read before, and I touched on this verse last week, but I want to go into it in a bit more detail today. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, there's a lot in that verse, so I want to unpack it bit by bit. He says, according to God's great mercy, he's given us New birth. New birth. Think about that image. Now Jesus himself, in John chapter 3, speaking to Nicodemus, said, you must be born again. And birth is such a powerful image, a powerful metaphor, isn't it? I mean, really, there's nothing so life-changing as being born. Imagine your first birth, just for a moment. Okay, There you are, snug in your warm sack of amniotic fluid. (laughs) 
and you're contemplating life after birth. (laughs) Is there life after birth? Is there life beyond the womb? What would it be like? And you really have no idea, do you? And then you're born into this incredible world of sights and sounds and tastes and experiences of people and rain and food and the sun and it's more extraordinary than anything you could have imagined pre-birth. What about new birth? New birth is just like that. Here we are wondering, is there life after death? Is there life beyond the tomb? What will it be like? And Jesus says, it's more extraordinary than anything you could imagine. Profoundly affecting everything. As radical as your first birth. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth. And it's, it's a bit of a weird phrase, but new birth into a living hope. What is this living hope? Well, I think it's meant to be contrasted with our original birth. When we're first born, the truth is we're born to die. From the moment you take your very first breath, the only certainty in life is that one day you will breathe your last breath. That you will die. And we're born into this extraordinary world, but it is a world marked by death and suffering and struggle and difficulty, pain. For all its wonder, there's a lot of ugliness in this world too. But this new birth is a new birth into a living hope, into a life that will not end with death into a reality that is not shaped by death or suffering or grief, but an extraordinary eternal life, a life of living hope. And we're told that this new birth into a living hope comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. I believe that's an historical fact witnessed by more than 500 people. But here it says that somehow through his resurrection from the dead, we can have this new birth. That somehow we can share in his resurrection, his new life again. How does that work? Well, it works by participation with Jesus. The New Testament says, when Jesus rose, those who trust in him, those who believe in him, are resurrected spiritually with him, are brought back to life after spiritual death. We participate with him. We kind of hitch our wagon to his wagon. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. We are bonded to him. Now that might be a a weird concept to, to contemplate, particularly in our Western individualistic culture that we live in. And there aren't many analogies like that out there that that are easily accessible, but I I saw one once on TV. It was a strange place to find this, actually. And uh, it was some time ago, I'm not going to say how long ago, actually, uh, but I flicked on the TV and it was the Golden Globe Awards, right? And I I hate these 
award shows. I can't stand it, people getting up there and thanking their tennis coach and their grade three teacher and, and all this sort of stuff. But uh, I saw what I think is one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen on TV. And the actor Ving Rhames, you know Ving Rhames? He'd won a Golden Globe for something that he was in. And he, he came up to the front and he stood in front of the microphone. You're just expecting the usual kind of drivel. And then he does something just unbelievable. He says, uh, I would like to call Mr. Jack Lemon to the stage. Now, Jack Lemon was an actor from many decades before. And everyone's a buzz. They're, they're wondering, what's this about? This is highly unusual. You know, what happened to the tennis coach and the grade three teacher? And, and the camera's... Filming the event, uh, trying to find, where's Jack Lemon's seat? Because no one really cared. And they, oh, they found him, and he's looking around thinking, I don't know what's going on. And then Ving Rhames says again, Mr. Jack Lemon, would you please come to the stage? And now there's this real buzz and anticipation, and, and Jack Lemon gets up, and he, he's, he's bedazzled, and he starts walking towards the stage, and he comes up, and he stands next to Ving Rhames. And then Ving Rhames says, <clears throat> I've always believed that being an artist is about giving. And I would like to give this to you, Mr. Jack Lemon. And he handed him his golden globe. And you could see the, the tears in the eyes of, of people in the audience. It was, it was just electric and I was choking up and I still choke up remembering it. And Jack Lemon said, this, this is one of the nicest, sweetest moments of my entire life. Now you see, Jack Lemon had not won that Golden Globe. It wasn't his to claim. He had no right to expect it. But he was invited to share in Ving Rhames' achievement. It's a beautiful picture. And we are invited to share in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That's why we can have new birth through his resurrection. And what's more, we share an inheritance, verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Here is an eternal inheritance that through the resurrection of Jesus we can share in beyond death. An inheritance that is imperishable. It is not going to decay. It is not going to fade away. It is not going to rust and ruin. It is uncorrupted. It cannot be twisted. It cannot be spoilt. It cannot be ruined. And it is unfading. Its glory will never pass. Its beauty will remain forever. By sharing in the resurrection of Jesus, we share in this magnificent inheritance. And I have to say to you, it is so different to everything else in this world. Our treasures in this world are fading. They're fleeting. They do not last. I think it's interesting to Think about technology for a second. Now, I'm a bit of a gadget guy, you know, like lots of guys, I enjoy the gadgets. But technology's interesting because it has the appearance of always being new, doesn't it? 
There's always something new in technology. That's part of the excitement and the buzz about it. When's the new iPhone coming out? Etc, etc. But when you think about it, the only reason technology is ever new is because it's also at the same time ever old. As soon as the new iPhone comes out, all the others are old. They're junk. The memory's too small. They're too slow. The operating system, you know. So it seems new, but really it's because things get old in six seconds through technology. Now I'm on my fourth iPhone. My first iPhone I bought in New York a year before it came out in Australia. And it was so cool, right? <laughs> Top of the pops and all that. Now I'm on iPhone 4 and that first iPhone doesn't even work anymore. And when it did, it seemed really slow, small memory, really big and chunky. It's just been superseded so quickly. And the other day, I, I dropped my iPhone 4 on the road and it skid across the gravel and it got some chunks taken out of it. And you know what my first thought was? Oh, well, I'll get iPhone 5 soon enough anyway. <laughs> but it's not just our stuff that fades away. We do too. Now, I know, again, this is like a remote reality for you if you're in your 20s. You don't even think about this till you hit about 30, I reckon. But when you hit 30, it's a bit of a rude shock. Over the last couple of years, I've been on this sort of fitness kick and uh, I've been training at the gym several times a week and I really enjoy it. It's great. And I'm probably the fittest I've been in my adult life. But that doesn't change the fact that I'm getting older. My hair is going grey. My wife says I should start dyeing it. <laughs> I've got lines in my face. You know, when I first started lecturing at Moore College five and a half years ago, everybody used to say, you seem so young to be lecturing at Moore College. No one says that anymore. <laughs> I'm getting older. And it's a shock. I know it's weird to say this, but it is a shock. And I love this quote from Trotsky. He said, nothing is so surprising to man than old age. And you think, how can that be? Everyone knows you've got to get older. But you know it up here, but you don't know it here. And it sneaks up on you and all of a sudden you say, hey, how did that happen? Five minutes ago I was 25. Now I've got grey hair and I feel old. Everything in this world is passing away. And when you hit 30, or when you start to really contemplate these things and take them on board, that's when people start to think about their legacy. If you come to terms with the fact that one day you're going to leave this earth, that's when you think about legacy. What will I leave behind? And for most of us, the most significant legacy we will ever have are our children. Here are real people in the world who you raise and you form and shape and teach. What a great contribution to the world. And then, if you're privileged, you'll know your grandchildren as well. All fun, no responsibility. And you get to shape them as well. My grandfather was one of the most important influences in my life. Do you know what your great-grandchildren? They probably won't even know your name. I don't know the names of my great-grandparents. 
I mean, I've been told what they are. Then I don't remember. Because I don't really care. That means that even within your own family, in a couple of generations, you will be forgotten. And in a room this small, it's, it's pretty unlikely, but in a room this small, but there could be someone here who does something so extraordinary in life that they will be remembered for the next couple of hundred years. It's possible. It's unlikely, but it's possible. <laughs> well, you know, so what? You're not going to share in that. You know why? Because you're going to be dead. See, the only legacy that lasts beyond death is Jesus' legacy. The only legacy that you can share in beyond death is Jesus' legacy. The only legacy that is worth anything in the end is Jesus' legacy. An eternal inheritance that you and I can share in that we've been invited to share because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now Peter goes on to say, it's not just this inheritance that will be guarded for you, but we ourselves, those who believe in Jesus, are protected for this as well, verse 5. This is kept in heaven for you who are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This word protected in the ancient world, it referred to someone, say, in the military, whose job it was, was to stand guard and protect a village or a town or a settlement. And the idea was that they would be willing to sacrifice their own life to protect the inhabitants. Here we see that if you trust in Jesus, you're protected in that way by God's power. And you know what? In a way, God has already taken a bullet for you. When Jesus died on the cross, he died in your place. He died to secure your salvation, your eternal life. He has guarded you to the point of taking a bullet to protect you. So, where do you stand with all this? Are you afraid of death? Well, you should be. Because you don't want it to happen and it's going to happen. You should be afraid of death. It's a rational fear. But you might not be afraid of death if you've been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If you want to remove that fear, if you want to have hope for life beyond the tomb, if you want to know life with God that is imperishable, that cannot be spoiled, that lasts forever, that is not tainted by death, 
then put your trust in Jesus who took a bullet for you and rose again to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great mercy that because of what Jesus has done, we can have new birth into a living hope. We pray for anyone here today who is genuinely afraid of death and what that might hold. Please alleviate our fears knowing that in your hands we are secure. In Jesus' name, Amen. I just want to thank Con for coming to speak to us. Um, Um, we actually have a bit of time now for some questions, so I'm going to get Con to come back. Um, and yeah, so we'll just take any questions from the floor or the lecture hall. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a horrible thing, I think, for anyone to desire death, to want a suicide, and, and I think that's a very sad situation. Um, but of course, many of us uh, are faced with that reality, and maybe some of us know people who have contemplated that or have done that. Um, I think I'd say that for someone who trusts in Jesus, the Bible says there's nothing you can do to break... Uh, your bond with him. And so even if you come to that point, whether it's through extreme uh, depression or uh, wrestling with some difficulty in life, uh, I take it that even the person that takes their own life, if if their confidence is in Jesus, then uh, they remain in the promise of new birth through his resurrection. Uh, I guess in many respects, well, fear is a subjective uh, experience, isn't it? So you can talk yourself out of all kinds of subjective experiences. Um, You could choose to believe a lie, for example. Uh, Again, I'll I'll quote Seinfeld at that point, where uh, (laughs) George Costanza gives advice as to how to beat a lie detector and says it's not a lie if you believe it's true. And so we can, we can construct internal realities where we can square off against those things. I'm just saying I don't, I'm not persuaded by the reasoning. Um, unless you uh, have a, a fairly uh, nihilistic view of life, which is you're just happy to be extinguished and, and you become comfortable with that. Uh, and if that means in the end that you're not afraid, well then, then so be it. But I guess the Christian answer is even then you should be afraid because you're going to fall into the hands of the living God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, first, I'd say there's nothing in the Bible that supports that view. In case you didn't hear uh, that, uh, some believe that if you commit suicide, you'll go to hell. Um, uh, there's nothing in the Bible, not one 
sentence in the Bible that supports that uh, as far as I'm aware. Um, and I'd go to Romans 8, which affirms that there is nothing in all of creation that can tear you away from the love of God if your trust is in Jesus. So even your own act of sin, and I believe taking your own life is sinful and rebellious, uh, even that um, does not stop the love of God. And I think partly that, that may relate, I could be wrong, but that may relate to Catholic theology in that you need, uh, if you take your own life, then there's a sin that hasn't been dealt with through um, the last rites or um, uh, through confession. Whereas uh, the Bible does not requ- say that you, we require these things, but that trusting in Jesus, even if you sinned, happened to sin, if, you know, say you sinned on that aeroplane before you went down, um, are you lost? No. Uh, because the moment you trust in Jesus um, for your eternal destiny is the moment you're saved. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, good question. I'm not sure I can fully answer that now. Uh, the question is, what happens to our body, spirit, etc. after death? As a Christian, you're saying, what does a Christian believe happens? Um, the Bible's not entirely clear about this, and there are a couple of theories. One is you kind of go into this soul sleep, that you kind of uh, lose consciousness until Jesus returns and everyone um, wakes up together, and but your experience will be you die and you go to heaven and it's all kind of, you just skip through time and you end up there. I used to think that, but I'm not persuaded by that anymore because Jesus says in Luke 23 to the thief on the cross as they're dying, today you'll be with me in paradise. And I think that supports the view that um, your spirit goes to be with God when you die straight away um, and your body will be raised when Jesus returns It will decay or be burnt to ashes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, 1 Corinthians 15 is helpful here where it says that through the resurrection of Jesus, um, perishable becomes imperishable, mortal becomes immortal. And and so our perishable bodies become imperishable. They're transformed um, through Jesus' work. So it's not not, uh, your body as it is now, or as it is in 50 years' time, it's a perfected, immortal version of you. Yeah. 